It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, how will Germany look in the post-Merkel era? And we must do something Angela Merkel has been the Chancellor of Germany for a record 15 years and she'll be leaving office at a time when her country is looking not only to a post-Brexit Europe but to a new transatlantic relationship too as Joe Biden becomes President of the United States. The task of finding a replacement for Merkel as the candidate for her Christian Democrat party in next year's elections has been a lengthy one and so far inconclusive. Rules have just been agreed this week for a special party conference to elect a successor in early January. Beside the strains of Covid across the country, Germany's role in European and transatlantic affairs is coming under new questioning. In this programme, we're going to hear from two voices with experience and influence in German politics and in how to lead Europe's most powerful country in its dealings with the rest of the world. One is the veteran diplomat and former ambassador to the US, Wolfgang Ischinger, and the other is Jens Spahn of Merkel's Christian Democrat Party. He's health minister in charge of COVID response in her cabinet and one half of a proposed dream team of candidates in the upcoming contest. I chaired a debate with Mr Spahn for the German-American conference organised by students at Harvard University. And you'll hear from the quality of the recording that due to COVID restrictions, the conference was held online. The minister was keen to talk about Germany's place in the world and it feels like this is going to be one of the big topics of election year. So, should the country aim to provide stronger global leadership and a clearer commitment to its alliances? NATO was built to keep the US in, the Russians out and the Germans down. That is what Lord Ismail once said at the beginning of NATO. And that has obviously changed. And now there is actually the expectation that Germany is not down, uh, but leading and taking more responsibilities. And of course, that is changing actually the whole structure and the whole relation of NATO and especially in Europe. And what we need to better developed together over the transatlantic is the idea of a European defense union was always seen as a threat to the NATO by the US. But it's not a threat made in the, the right way. European sovereignty is one of those touchstones. There is skepticism about whether you can have both. Do you need to decide perhaps a little more clearly where you want the emphasis of your defense and security policy to be? We need European sovereignty, of course. What is a partner worth that is not really sovereign and actually capable of handling the things itself? So actually for the US to have a, a European partner that is really in the situation to make a difference, for example, at the Balkans, right now the truth is 20 years after Milosevic, more than 20 years, we would not be able on our own without US support to do 
uh, what is necessary if something similar happened. It's just the truth. 20 years later, we are still not capable. Talking about European sovereignty, it's about being sovereign enough to take care for security and peace in your own neighborhood, while at the same time being close together within the transatlantic partnership. He also talked about Germany's handling of Russia, which has been something of a divisive issue recently, turning on the wisdom or otherwise of Germany's joint venture with a Kremlin-backed company to build the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and the attempted poisoning of Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny, who was later treated in a Berlin hospital. Of course, the relation between Russia and Europe may be just because of geographical reasons. This is a bit more complex here in Europe than it might be in D.C. It's far away from D.C. and very close, two hours by, by plane from Berlin, uh, Moscow. Uh, and so, of course, we mm. need to make very clear what is absolutely not acceptable. And we have to underline with, with sanctions, with measures we take, of course. And at the same time, we need still to be able to have a dialogue. Otherwise, there won't be any stability here. Despite its size and position in the middle of Europe's security and defence compact, Germany is often criticised for being underweight in those areas, not least for lagging in its commitment to meet the NATO target of 2% of GDP for defence. And if you thought that Brexit had already happened, well, think again, because the ongoing trade talks which mark the final stage of Britain leaving the EU do leave a gap in the relationship between Britain and Germany, two old frenemies. What should they look like? Well, I mean, I hope this will be finally set soon. And then we really should start a new relation. And what I really do hope for is that it will not be like after too many divorces. You keep telling each other what was wrong in the past and why we you split and blah, blah, blah. That we are really able and willing to start a new chapter in the EU UK relation that is actually based on partnership and not on blaming each other. I'm not too sure that really will happen, but I would definitely advocate for that approach. Jens Spahn. Wolfgang Ischinger is a diplomat who's been at the heart of the transatlantic relationship since the early 1970s when he worked at the UN. He became Germany's ambassador to the US back in 2001 and he did the same job in the UK five years later. Now he's chair of the influential Munich Security Conference and he's written a book entitled World in Danger, Germany and Europe in an uncertain time. It draws on nearly 50 years at the coalface of diplomacy. So what challenges does he think a new face in the Kanzleramt, the Chancellor's mighty Berlin office, will face? Wolfgang Ischinger, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. You have seen a, a lot of the way that the world changes over decades and a lot of the risk points that we faced. Why did you think that this was such a particularly uncertain time that you wanted to, to publish a book with that title? When I started writing the book, it became clearer and clearer going forward that most of the certainties on which the foreign policy, the policies of the Federal Republic of Germany and many of our European partners had been built that most of these certainties had been uh, disappearing. The certainty, for example, that there will be forever 
the protective uncle, United States, making sure that nothing adverse would happen to Europe. Is that still a certainty? Uh, then there was the certainty for us, at least in Germany, maybe not for you in the United Kingdom, that there would be the ever closer union, the project of European integration. Brexit, the biggest issue of them all, demonstrates that there is no such thing, at least not at the moment, as ever closer union. We are trying desperately to hold the union together as it is, as the United Kingdom leaves. And what about the idea, for example, that China would become over time a responsible stakeholder? The hope that our global order, the so-called liberal international order, would continue to dominate the future global architecture. Not so sure anymore whether that holds. So many of these certainties, uh, whether it's in the EU, whether it's outside the EU, have uh, tended to disappear. And that means that we're going to be living in a world with growing possible potential great power rivalries, with bloodshed continuing. Look at what happened recently in Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, what continues to happen in the Middle East, all over the place. So the world has become a more dangerous place and we need to step up. Let's talk about what that might mean in practice. I mean, isn't the world, if you like, that code of world in danger can often mean seen from the liberal, small L, liberal perspective. It means slightly different things either side of the Atlantic, but the open, globalising, uh, small L, liberal outlook just kind of underestimated the challenges after 1989, you know, which I was fortunate enough to, to cover in Germany and to look at the emergence of the Germany that followed and where it fitted into into the world. I suppose you could just say we were too optimistic. My son asked me this the other day. We were your generation too optimistic about what would happen. Did you simply fail to see the many dangers ahead? And now you look all disappointed. Was was his sort of tone? What do you think about that? Well, I think you are absolutely right. You are absolutely right. The only point I would make is it wasn't only an illusion for us Germans. It was also a European illusion. Many of the projects which the European Union has started over the last two or three decades were what I would call fair weather projects with no provision for, you know, when it's going to rain. Think of Schengen, for example. We did not really think through the question of what would happen if one of our member countries could not, in fact, adequately protect their own borders. But to come back to your question... For the Germans, for us, this thinking was, of course, particularly strong. In 1990, Germany thought that we were now finally in the happy situation of being a country in favor of the status quo. Because until 1990, we were not a country in favor of the status quo. We wanted unification. In 1990 and after 1990, uh, Germany began to uh, declare, and I have, I can quote, you know, Helmut Kohl and Volker Rühe and many others, and I was actually among those speechwriters who put this into speeches, where we said, we are now a happy country, we're only surrounded by friends, we're only surrounded by friends, no danger anymore. So we've, we fell to sleep, if you wish, geostrategically. 
Well, that's quite a big charge, and it's an interesting one that, that you should raise it at, at the moment, isn't it? Because Germany is in transition. It's taken a bit of a while, this transition from uh, Angela Merkel, 15 years in office, the search for the perfect chancellor candidate goes on. But it is it is imminent. And is that the part of the Merkel doctrine that you think is goes at least to her successors, the geopolitics? Well, Germans, of course... After all the convulsions of the 20th century of starting and losing two wars, two major wars, of being at the origin and being the perpetrators of the Holocaust, digesting reunification, we've had lots of major changes in these first four or five decades after the war. So Germans were very happy to hear from, not only from Chancellor Merkel, but from other lead, leading politicians. Look, if you elect me, don't worry because nothing will change. We will just continue to be a prosperous country. We'll make sure that we have export markets all over the place, including in China, and we will be pro-NATO, we will be pro the EU, but we will not want to rock the boat too much. And what is different now? I mean, we now have um, two big things are different. One is that it's towards the, the end of the Merkel era and a successor will be in place with different priorities, building on her, her legacy, a strong legacy in many ways. But you also have Joe Biden replacing Donald Trump. So this, in a way, to challenge your book title, I suppose you could argue the world is probably less uncertain, arguably, than it was. Well, I'm not so sure. Yes, Superficially, one might say, and that would be the biggest mistake we could make, to say, okay, now Trump will be gone by January the 20th, so we can now lean back and enjoy the sunshine again because they will make things right again. I think that would be a totally false assumption. It would be a terrible illusion. The point to make is the point which Angela Merkel herself made in a a colloquial fashion some three years ago after her return from, from a visit to Washington to meet with President Trump. She said, I guess we cannot anymore totally rely on others taking care of our own security needs, etc. Maybe we will have to look after that a little more ourselves. Something like this was the gist. That rocked the boat because she had and others had not said that before. Now, the point I want to make, uh, Anne, is the following. Even if we will have a real honeymoon with the incoming Biden administration, because of climate, because of a, maybe a return to the JCPOA, to the Iran deal, because of many other areas where European and, and American interests will again overlap, even if that will be true, and I think it will be true, there will be a major difference in the transatlantic relationship going forward. Why? Because for the first time after uh, World War II, people will now need to consider what if after four years of Biden, 20,000 people in Arizona or 5,000 people in, uh, I don't know, Georgia or Michigan will decide to vote the other way. And we will again have somebody who walks away from major global arrangements. Can the United States really be long-term 
the reliable ally that we have been relying upon. And I'm extremely grateful for the role the United States has played. The word I'm a passport holding transatlanticist, uh, so to speak. But this lingering doubt, which cannot go away because of conditions in the United States, will have to change the way we think our, about our own security, we, how we consider external threats, and how we're going to try to confront them. I suppose one of the criticisms of the, the Merkel challenge, if you like, that global transatlantic security was was more imperiled and Europe needed to step up is that other than a slightly shall we say in in the in the long weeds project for European defense identity not much has happened Germany still hasn't uh, reached its two percent in terms of GDP on NATO contributions which if you believe you're looking after your own security that might be one place that you could start oh absolutely I think we're we are not doing what we need to do, that is, in the case of Germany, a, a problem of the current coalition. I think the party of Chancellor Merkel, the CDU, would be quite willing to meet the challenge more squarely. Most analysts in Berlin expect that this current coalition will not, will not be able to be continued after the next election in, in September. And we'll see what comes out. The good thing is that whatever the outcome is going to be, we're not going to have a right-wing uh, government in Germany. We're not going to have a far-left socialist government in Germany. We're going to have a mainstream, middle-of-the-road government. So I think our neighbors uh, will be able to watch what's going on in Germany uh, with interest, but not uh, agonizing. Jens Spahn, health minister, but much more besides in Germany, a sort of bit of a, a coming thing in conservative politics. He issues this challenge that Germany will have to be more assertive in the world. So that brings us really a bit back to your thesis. You seem to have argued that if Germany is not causing a problem, that's already a good thing. Well, that must be true, but it's a pretty low bar. I think Germany has a mission, which in short is to be the enabler of a more capable, more credible, more responsible European Union. It's not about making Germany great again. Absolutely not. It's about using German power, economic, political, maybe even the little military power that we can bring to the table to enable the European Union to be a more credible actor in, a, in an increasingly uh, difficult global environment. Can I ask, give you a specific example? Take China, where no one would say there's nothing absolutely terrible that has happened between Europe and China, but you've seen and you, you've referenced yourself a kind of fraying of that, that idea that you can just do trade with China, you can be successful as Germany is with its exports to China, but it doesn't really seem to answer some of the bigger questions that are China poses on the global stage, whether it's the internal repression of the, the Uyghurs, whether it's the situation in Hong Kong, where we had a, a rather quiet response from a, a Germany, which in many ways stands up for human rights. You're absolutely right. I would be the first to agree for many years, even for decades, China was considered in Berlin as an export market. How can we sell the maximum number of BMWs, Volkswagens, etc. in China? That was all that mattered. Uh, well, I'm exaggerating a little bit, obviously. Today, we are totally in line with the concept of looking at China, 
not just as a business partner, but as a systemic rival. That is the phrase coined by a paper of the European Union Commission a year and a half ago. However, that's the, the big difference. Our American friends in quite a, unfortunately, a bipartisan American approach to China have tended to adopt, and that is not only the fault of Donald Trump, a very confrontational approach to China. The European approach needs to be, let's have a European China strategy and let's confront the Chinese with this strategy in the interest of building a level playing field, of having rules that are respected. But would you be prepared to endanger parts of the business relationship in order to make those points more strongly? If the European Union speaks with one voice on China, we're not going to endanger our business interests because China needs us at least as much as we need China. If we give a mandate to our European leaders to go to China and to say, this is 450 million, unfortunately, without the United Kingdom now, 450 million Europeans, uh, the strongest uh, um, economic bloc in the world, in the world, uh, we want to do business with you, but not only on your terms, let's figure it out. And I think that would work. We'll see what happens. We'll come back to you and we'll check in with you on that one. Yeah, right? <laughs> You've said that you see Brexit as being about much more than just the immediate matters on the table, the shape of British trade with the European Union uh, after the departure, which has formally already taken place. What do you see as being materially different in the relationship of Britain and Europe and Britain and Germany, subject close to my heart? Well, first of all, uh, I think we will need to allow the dust to settle. As a diplomat, you've got to be an optimist. You've got to believe in outcomes, not in failure. And I think that once the dust has settled, we should make an enormously generous offer, a big offer to uh, the United Kingdom. We should say, you know, we don't want to compare you to a country like Canada that has never been a member of the European Union. You are the only country in the world that actually was, for decades, a member of the European Union. Therefore, you deserve a special privilege. We want you, if you like to, to be at our table. We want to invite you as our privileged partner because we think that we, continental Europe, including Ireland, will be so much more convincing, stronger, if we can actually coordinate with an independent, with a sovereign United Kingdom, uh, the kinds of policies that will matter out there in the world. Jens Spahn said to us that it was a bit like a, a divorce and that he hoped that after the, the divorce would be a period where we had to try very hard to be polite to each other. But he hoped that uh, something a bit warmer could emerge. But your model sounds a bit more like a kind of divorce where the partner leaves one suitcase back at home. You think you could make that work in which you have a, a Brexited Britain, but a Britain that's still very integrated uh, from some European standpoints, that would look like having your cake and eating it. Of course, there are certain red lines, the internal market, uh, you're either in the EU or you're not in the EU. It's like a little bit if you're either pregnant or, or you're not, there's nothing in between. Having said that, I do believe that as a principle, the door should remain open to whatever future other arrangements 
uh, may emerge as desirable on both sides of the channel. If the United Kingdom at some distant point in the future decides to reevaluate its relationship, we should not create any obstacles for that. So I'm very much in favor of the idea of leaving a suitcase behind in Brussels, maybe coming back to it at some point in the future. We can't let you go without your prognosis. Who do you think will be Chancellor after Angela Merkel steps down next year? Um, a leading member of the CDU. Oh, that old <laughs> trick. He's <laughs> a politician, <laughs> my lord. Um, <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to have to press you. Uh, quite frankly, I think that if a decision uh, needed to be taken today, I think there would probably be, interestingly enough, for the first time that I can uh, remember, a, uh, an inclination by very many Germans to favor the prime, the minister-president of Bavaria, Söder, Markus Söder, because he has tended to appear during the pandemic crisis for the last 10 months or so now to be decisive. That's been quite impressive, but it would be a departure from past practice if we had, for the very first time, somebody from not within the CDU, but from the CSU, the Bavarian sister party, to emerge as the candidate. My only worry is that whoever governs as chancellor a year from now will have a lot of difficult issues on their plate. So we need uh, decisive leadership. There will be very difficult coalition issues. Could he work out the compromises necessary with a partner in the way that Angela Merkel has quietly in her, can I say that without being accused of, uh, of machoism, in her, in, in her female way of, you know, not throwing stuff at other people, not having a, a publicly visible temper tantrum, uh, not accusing people with bad language, but always uh, appearing to be quietly in charge. That's a hard act to follow, actually. Wolfgang Ischinger, thank you very much for joining us. And we'd love to know what you think is a Biden administration, the start of a reignited European-American relationship, or just more of the same, but a bit politer. And there's also that post-Brexit Europe to consider. Will the divorce be a frosty affair with arguments about who's getting the cat or something a bit warmer? The Victorians called the British and the Germans awkward cousins, never more so than now. We'd love to know what you think. Write to us, radioeconomist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio in German, English, or whatever takes your fancy. For our best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.